You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, stop the clock right there, James. What's five seconds? Well, five seconds for me is about the time it takes to check my emails in the morning or tie my shoes. But what is five seconds to the U.S. consumer? In five seconds, a U.S. consumer has spent $60,000 online and another $500,000 offline. Now, that's equivalent to 150,000 cups of coffee in, let's say, 1,000 iPhones or even 5,600 pairs of sneakers, all in five seconds. So why is this important, you ask? Well, think about what that means in an hour, a day, or even a year. The U.S. consumer is the U.S. economy. Well, 70% of it, that is. Now, if the U.S. consumer stops spending, the U.S. economy stops working. And if the U.S. economy stops and breaks, the global economy goes with it. So let's get back to the shoppers. Because if you know how to understand and really predict what they're going to do next, you can get a leg up on where the global economy is headed. This week, we get to hear from a woman who is one of the world's top macro thinkers and whose warnings about the deteriorating U.S. consumer retail and auto sectors a year ago are all coming to fruition. I think it's going to be a bigger battle and has been so far with consumer than it was with housing because it's the whole ball of wax. Um, And as I pointed out since the beginning of the year, you know, the view has been, or even since the middle of last year, that in your effort to get away from the hit to uh, different stock market sectors of the strong dollar and the low oil price, you have to double down on the consumer sector. So everyone's hiding in the consumer sector. So you're gonna have to really beat them over the head with some bad news to persuade them to start thinking about other places to go because there really aren't a lot of other places to go that people are excited about. This week on Adventures in Finance, Stephanie Pomboy and the fall of US retail. Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our usual long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and the not so good stories of the week. This week I am long bravery and I am actually long bravery because I just want to honor D-Day, which was back in June 6th of 1944 when the Allied forces stormed uh, shores of Normandy. I'm sure happy endings. Um, Now, before you take this somewhere that we don't need to go, I'm talking about um, the Banco Popular uh, debacle in Spain. In a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom they derived from that experience. Yeah, this week we have Jerry Hayworth, CEO of 36 South Capital Partners, and Jerry shares a story that's going to be familiar to a lot of people, a hard lesson he learned about shorting the NASDAQ in 1998 to 2000. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chen, and this is Adventures in Finance. 
Today is June 8th, 2017, and welcome to episode 19 of Adventures in Finance. Uh, sitting not alongside me uh, in one country is James. How are you, buddy? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Where, where are you guys? Uh, it's like a desert here with tumbleweeds going across. Well, now are you talking about the office or the inside of your head? <laughs> I was referring to the office, but okay, you know. <laughs> all right, that's fine. Well, I'm in I'm in New York, and Aaron, uh, I believe you're even further north than I am. Yeah, Grant, I am in Toronto, uh, but I am actually going to be moving to well, not moving, but flying to New York, uh, where you are. I believe, um, in, in the next couple of hours. So unfortunately, we're not going to be able to meet up because I think you're, where are you headed off to next? I have to get out of here. So yeah, I, I'm, now I know you're going to be here in a couple of hours. I will bring my flight forward. The last <laughs> thing we want to do is be in the same, uh, in the same city. That would, be, that would break weeks of tradition. Sorry, Grant, doesn't that mean that you then have to fly back to me to escape Aaron? James, there are plenty of airports between <laughs> me and you. Don't worry. I'm sure I can find one of them to land in. All right. Just to keep out of your way. Okay. <laughs> Guys, let's get into this week's podcast. And we start, as always, with our long short segment. Well, Grant, I, let's do that. Let me start with my short. This week, I am short initial coin offerings. Okay. And okay. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you saw this story. And we ran the Bitcoin story last week, as our listeners know. Um, but I came across a story that um, Jawad Mian shared on Twitter. And I thought it was fascinating because it was talking about basically these. Um, kind of like IPOs, but they're dealing with Bitcoins. And it's about, essentially about how companies are now issuing their own private currencies in an effort to raise funds, it's typically like startups. Uh, and most recently, a fund, uh, sorry, a, a company called Gnosis, which is um, which they create and develop advanced prediction markets, uh, they raised a couple million dollars with their private um, private offering of what they call initial coin offerings. But if you look on the other hand, there was a company in, in um, India that got shut down by Indian authorities and was caught funneling $350 million through, you know, payment processes in Germany. And they were also involved in one of these initial coin offerings. So, you know, given where Bitcoin is right now, given the frenzy around it, um, you know, I'm short these initial coin offerings, but there's actually, I think an upside, there's an upshot to this. And is that, you know, it's still a nascent industry. And a lot of these companies are developing technologies and applications based off of Bitcoin technology. And if you want to participate on this platform, you actually need like a token on that blockchain. So, you know, I say I'm short because like there, you know, there are frauds out there right now and people need to be careful. Um, and that's why I'm short. But I think in the long run, it's actually kind of interesting to follow. So, uh, but for now this week, I am short initial coin offerings rent. Yeah, it is, it is interesting how quickly these things have sprung up. And I think that was one of the things that people didn't really think through uh, in the initial phases of Bitcoin was just how easy it was going to be for people to set up their own private uh, private blockchains for, for all kinds of things. Um, and this is one of the big reasons, you know, Raoul recently very publicly uh, wrote a piece about how he'd sold all his Bitcoins. For now, he's made a great profit on them, but he just wanted to sit out the next phase this just to figure out how all these various private blockchains are going to affect the landscape. And I, and right. I think that was a very smart thing to do. So uh, I don't think that's a bad short for the time being, Aaron. My own short this week, um, I'm short happy endings. Um, now, before you, uh, Sorry. before you take this somewhere that we don't need to go, I'm talking about um, the Banco Popular uh, debacle in Spain. Oh. Um, now, for those of you that haven't seen the story, uh, Banco Popular has basically been bailed in. It's the first test of these uh, new EU rules on bail-ins, and the, the bank has been bought for a dollar by Banco Santander. Um, you know, the senior debt has performed okay, but the, the cocoa bonds, do you remember those from last year with all the Deutsche Bank fuss? Uh, right. Cocoa bonds, the equity bonds. guys. Yeah, yeah these, are all, these people are all going to get wiped out. And as somebody, a guy called Bill Blaine, uh, who works for Mint Partners in London, said, 
you know, if you think the story has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. And I think he's absolutely right. You know, the markets have shrugged this off. Um, but this just took me back when I saw the purchase price, you know, a, a dollar for the whole company. It just took me right back to Bear Stearns being sold for $2 mm -hmm. a share to, to JP Morgan, you know, mere days after they declared a book value of $80 a share. And so when you think through the similarities to, to with what's going on now to 2007, if you look at you know, the subprime auto loans we've spoken about as opposed to mortgage loans, right. you look at things like this happening, the, 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 the rhyming going on now is extraordinary. So I, I think people need to be paying attention. This is the first time one of these banks has actually been allowed to go under. Uh, and generally those things don't happen in isolation. So I am short happy endings. I am long um, being very aware of what's going on and the potential bad outcomes that could happen as things like this continue to tumble. Yeah, it's interesting, Grant, as you say that the market shrugs it off because, I mean, it's not like um, it's not like Banco Popular's, uh, you know, I don't know how many tens of billions of dollars worth of NPLs that are on their book, like goes away. I think um, Banco Santander actually takes that over. So, you know, they're they're still on the hook for this. So it's it's a developing story. And I completely agree. Like, you know, people should be long, you know, paying attention to this because uh, the similarities to, to Bear Stearns are, are eerie. Uh, but let me... Well, the other, the other thing to remember about this, Aaron, is that Banco Santander is no JP Morgan, right? <laughs> JP Morgan bought Bear Stearns and swallowed right. it up. Um, you know, one of the strongest, most powerful banks in the world. Banco Santander may be a lot of things, one of the strongest, most well-capitalized banks in the world. It most certainly is not. So this, to me, puts Santander firmly on the radar of being the next group to go. So I, I'll be watching this very, very carefully. Yeah, likewise. Well, Grant, um, I just want to pivot to my long for the week. And this week, I am long bravery. And I am actually long bravery because I just want to honor D-Day, which was back in June 6th of 1944, when the Allied forces stormed uh, shores of Normandy, and um, I don't know, I just I just wanted to give a shout out for that, and and, and it also has to do with the, you know, I've been recently doing some reading, figuring out where we are, and look, you know, we've talked about this a lot about looking back at history to see if there are any parallels to, you know, where we are today versus where we were back then, and um, I think you've written about this as well, but the similarities between you know the deglobalization phase that we went into leading into World War One and then going into World War Two is is pretty scary and and it's eerie, um, and so just thinking about that, looking back in, in time and, and I guess appreciating the sacrifice back then, it makes me think about the future and, and what sorts of sorts of sacrifice and, and bravery will be required to get through the next phase um, that, you know, we seem to be entering right now, you know, be it the fourth turning or whatnot. But um, so this week I am long bravery. Well, I think that's a, an admirable long. Anyone listening, um, the, I actually gave a presentation on what you were talking about there, the, the similarities with the lead up to World War One. Uh, and I think the video is still on YouTube. If you Google the consequences of the economic peace on YouTube, you mm. should be able to find that. So oh, I think great a great presentation, Grant. I think, I think it's the first a... presentation of yours that I ever watched. No, oh, okay. And you came yeah. back for more, you poor misguided fool. <laughs> yeah. Somehow well, I ended up in Cayman. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm going to take a different track uh, after your far more, uh, far deeper long. Mine is um, peanut butter and the inflationary effects of human ingenuity. Now, I was reading a story last week about a group of uh, scientists who were trying to uh, do a study on how to protect manta rays. And they were trying to stick cameras to the manta rays. They needed suction cup cameras, which is what they stick to whales and seals and stuff to follow them around. And they couldn't get these, um, these cameras to stick to the manta rays because uh, their skin was just too smooth. There was no bumps and hollows to hold this thing on. So one of the guys came up with uh, the genius idea. He happened to have a, a jar of peanut butter on the boat, and so he stuck the peanut butter on the manta ray and stuck the camera on the peanut butter, and it uh, <laughs> it helped the suction cups to stick on. Now, what, what the hell am I talking about? I hear you ask. Um, 
but it was the second knock-on effect that was the interesting one to me. So they were they were filming off a small coastal town called uh, Yalapa uh, on in Mexico, and uh, there were only a few jars of peanut butter stocked in the entire town, which was there exclusively to sell to American tourists. So these guys, having discovered this new technology, the peanut butter cam, ran out and cleaned out all the stores of peanut butter, uh, causing chaos amongst all the holidaying American uh, tourists who were only able to have the jelly sandwich instead of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So they, they, kept, the, they, kept, the, um, they kept the jars of peanut butter, left the tourists high and dry, and one would imagine the black market price of peanut butter went through the roof. So it's amazing how technological advancements such as this can have very fast knock-on effects in the real world and cause inflation <laughs> to spike. So I am long uh, peanut butter and human ingenuity this week. That's, uh, you know, Grant, about peanut butter and you mentioned jelly, uh, anywhere that I've gone around the world, you know, that's outside of North America, I've always gotten like kind of a confused and like bemused look when I was like, yeah, this is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and it's delicious. Um, I think I had the same a similar experience when I was in, um, even when I first moved to Cayman, I was like, yeah, this is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't know, like... Why is it? Is peanut butter not something that other people? Is it only exclusive Americans? I never, I never knew that. I guess like I, to you, marine you know, biologists to too. Say, then, huh? well, no, I, I have to say it's not something I uh, ever took a liking to. Although when I lived in the US, both my kids loved the PB and J sandwich. So yeah. look, it's, I'm sure they're very nice, but to me, I just can't get my head around it. I'm afraid there are things that should not go together, like you know this podcast and James. But um, but peanut butter and jelly <laughs> hey, to me is. Uh, <laughs> I'm like okay, peanut fine. butter and honey. That's far uh, superior to peanut butter and jelly. All right. Well, I think we have. I think we have the name of your new rap supergroup. Shall we move <laughs> on, gentlemen? Let's do it. Yeah. Well, next up is this week's commentary feature, where we revisit Stephanie Pomboy's interview from back in May of 2016. And I thought it was a great time to do this because her calls on the U.S. consumer, retail sector, auto are all playing through. And so I want to get Raul and you to talk about it. And I think it's going to be really beneficial for the listeners and for the subscribers as we move into the latter phase of this business cycle. All right, this week's commentary, uh, a special treat. We've got Stephanie Pomboy of Macro Mavens. Um, Steph and I sat down about a year ago to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, and, and she's someone who's worked, I rely on a great deal. Uh, she's always early. She's a, ahead of a lot of these things, and this conversation demonstrates that perfectly. You know, we spoke about the, the consumer. We spoke about retail recessions. We spoke about auto loans, a bunch of stuff that in the, in the uh, subsequent 12 months have all started playing out. So this is going to be a lot of fun to go back and listen to this. Uh, so let's jump into the first clip. It's interesting because the um, the dogmatism, I guess would be the word, around the consumer sector is pretty much as resolute as it was around housing yeah. back then. Um, and I guess, you know, the people are willing, when I go through these charts and I show, you know, the inventory numbers and, you know, goods consumption is at recessionary levels. Um, you know, you've had a huge increase in employment gains, but spending growth has continued to slow, which is really unusual. They usually move yeah. together. Confidence has gone up, but spending has continued to slow. So there are all these signs that there's something different going on. And yet no one's persuaded, despite... I don't know, three years of data, you know, to support it. Um, and so I guess it's this feeling like, well, it doesn't pay to bet against the U.S. consumer. You know, the U.S. consumer is just in a temporary funk. It's weather. It's too hot. It's too cold. You know, whatever the rationale is. Um, but 
it's going to happen next month or next quarter. And you see it in the earnings estimates. You know, they're sort of begrudgingly taking down the near-term numbers, um, although not much. I think the consumer discretionary uh, earnings forecast for the first quarter was 11, and now it's 9 or something right. like that. So it's not exactly apocalyptic. Um, but they just kind of tack it all on the latter quarters that, you know, if you take down the first quarter, you just add it onto two, three, and four Q. Um, so there isn't this recognition that there might be a larger issue holding back the consumer. Um, and I think the Fed has kind of uh, fueled that narrative or stoked that narrative a little bit by constantly holding out this idea that the things that are depressing growth are all temporary and transitory and, you know, we'll see things recover and job growth is fine and, you know, zippity-doo-dah. Yeah, zippity-doo-dah indeed. Yeah, nobody has spent more time that I've read looking into this stuff and no one has the data better than Steph. You know, the, the number she looks at and the case she makes is incredibly compelling, but I think the point she made there that the U.S. consumer is too big for people to kind of take a negative bet against is really, really important. You know, it's 70% of the economy and people don't like the thought that the U.S. consumer could be struggling. But when you look at the data that Steph presents, the hard numbers show there is a change. The consumer is not doing as well as the sentiment shows. We're back to this hard data, soft data again. And the evidence is clear. I've been furiously scribbling notes through this yeah. just because you and I have been talking about this at length. We made a presentation about some of this, some of the aspects of why this may be taking place. You've written about it. I've written about it. We did the restaurant interview yeah. with Paul Westra, Westra yeah. recently as well. It's, it's kind of really at the forefront of our minds. What I love about Real Vision is how early our guys are yeah. to the key things. You know, you listen to them and it doesn't necessarily play out there and then. But it gets it on your radar screen and you start digging in, following the thematic, and it plays out. And it's interesting that markets don't operate that way. Until it's staring them in the face so and the prices are falling, they ignore it. Yes, They're like, so oh, true. it doesn't matter until it happens. You know, we're seeing a similar kind of thing with the oil story playing out now that, that's across Real Vision right now. It's one of these things where it builds and builds and builds and builds as a story and nobody wants to listen until the price actually falls. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, really bearish oil now. Yeah. I'm like, really? Well, well, this is, and I think, to Steph's point, that's why this is perhaps the hardest thing for people to, to take a flyer on and believe the numbers because it's such a big component. But since she and I spoke, we've seen store closings at a record high this year. There are st stores going out of business everywhere you look. You know, we've seen Sears and JCPenney and all these companies really, really struggling in the retail sector. And, of course, the argument has been, well... On average, the consumer's doing okay. This is all going to online shop. I know the other narrative, because I'm a big fan of watching market narratives, is, oh, Amazon's got them all. Yeah, so it's exactly. Amazon. Ignoring the fact that the total sales is falling. It's also down, yeah. I mean, and uh, you know, all these stores have online capabilities. You can go you can go to JCPenney online and Sears online and Macy's online if you want to. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple. So, you know, I think this is, this is symptomatic of a major problem but as you said, until it smacks people around the face, they just don't want to know about it. The evidence, you know, the housing bubble was clearly deflating. And then you started to see the delinquencies and the stress on the consumer sector. Um, so you really needed to prove it. Right. You know, you could point out that this was coming, right. you know, and I did for however long. Um, but until it actually was right in front of people's faces, 
they weren't going to going to acknowledge it. So that's why I feel like this inventory thing is so important and I focus so much on it because that's something that will come home to roost in corporate profits, I would think, pretty quickly. You know, uh, the Nike thing I thought was just the shot across the bow. And obviously, the only way to get rid of all this surplus inventory is to really cut prices. And that's going to be really negative for the earnings of these companies where earnings expectations are double digit, you know. So I just think that's going to be the way that this finally comes to light. I don't think anyone cares about the retail sales numbers month to month or consumer spending. No one's going to look at this until some major retailer comes out and says, we got a problem and it's not going to be worked out in the next three months. I think it's going to be a bigger battle and has been so far with consumer than it was with housing because it's the whole ball of wax. Um, And as I pointed out since the beginning of the year, you know, the view has been, or even since the middle of last year, that in your effort to get away from the hit to uh, different stock market sectors of the strong dollar and the low oil price, you have to double down on the consumer sector. So everyone's hiding in the consumer sector. So you're going to have to really beat them over the head with some bad news to persuade them to start thinking about other places to go, because there really aren't a lot of other places to go that people are excited about. Um, So I think it's you're really going to have to have some major destruction there. Again, you know, like you said, this is the whole if you get the consumer right, you pretty much got the whole story. So what you're saying is if the consumer isn't everything that's being priced in, the stock market itself has a major problem on its hands. Yeah, well, that's that's essentially what we were saying, right? I mean, and this is it. It's a big, big problem. And it's not only the stock market, the economy. I mean, consumption is 60-something percent, 68% of the entire U.S. economy. And... Again, going back to what we were talking about, we've been watching this happening, and now the numbers, this is a year after the interview, the numbers are starting to get taken down, yeah. and some retailers are getting taken out and shot almost on a daily basis yeah. now. Well, you know, Steph spoke there about Nike being a shot across the bow, and I remember seeing that go past the tape a year ago, and what they talked about was the inventory problem they had. And if you look at the inventory to sales ratio, which is a chart that Steph uses frequently, and I've stolen it from her on many occasions. Steph, if you're listening, apologies. Um, but it's such a great chart because inventory to sales ratio is at places we've never seen before. And so there's this massive overhang sitting there on shelves in warehouses that has to be cleared. And if the consumer's struggling, that means one thing, they're going to have to slash prices. And remember, this was before the rate hikes yes. as well. So it's been coming. And we know about the student debt. We know about the auto loans. We've also seen the same inventory issue building up in cars. Yeah. I know that's something we'll cover across Real Vision in various parts soon, but the car sector is seeing exactly the same inventories after inventories because people just aren't buying finished goods. They're not, and, and they're struggling to get credit now to actually take the loans out they need to buy the stuff. And then going back to Paul Westra and the restaurants are also struggling. So I think Steph's dead right. I mean, she saw this very early, but it's now... Uh, permeating across almost every part of consumption. Yeah. Yet, economists don't care or know. The stock market doesn't still yet care or know. Individual retailers are getting taken out and shot. They're closing down stalls. The REITs are now down 20%. Yeah. The shopping mall REITs are down 20% this year alone. But still, the stock market hasn't figured out 
there's a consumption problem. Well, and this and this provides a great opportunity for people. You know, the, the, there's these these things are still at all-time highs. You know, the retailing sector, the ETFs and the retailers, both the consumer discretionary, which amazes me, and also the staples, they're both at or around all-time highs. You know, there's an opportunity here for people who who you know, believe this narrative that the consumer is in trouble to actually get short at a good level. Yeah, and um, we'll talk a little bit in a little bit about the demographic side of it that you and I have looked into because I think that's that's probably the real story that's yeah. going on underneath here. Yeah, and this is unlikely to be a quick rebound story. This is something much more structural. Anyway, let's listen to Stephanie. See what, she, what else she's got to say. Just like the apparel inventory to sales chart, you know, the auto chart is the same in terms of the massive inventories that are out there, um, and I guess ultimately auto sales will be a function of the availability of credit because at the margin, it's all been about, you know, just the cheap, cheap credit for autos. Um, And, you know, you're already seeing delinquencies in the subprime auto space. So eventually that will start to bleed out and will diminish, one would think, the appetite for lending there, which then hit sales. But, you know, I have to confess, I've been blown away with the strength of the sales numbers, but you know, you are seeing massive inventories, and apparently, the incentives are the most aggressive they've been since the last recession. So they're selling these cars, but they're having to really pull every rabbit out of the hat to do it, which isn't surprising given what I see on the consumer front. Um, so I, you know, I think the auto things can be really fascinating because it was such a huge contributor to the recovery, um, particularly. Uh, in the consumer space. So when you take that away, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the uh, emperor will have no clothes. Um, But also it has, you know, the impact on uh, the whole, I'm looking at it from the uh, municipal finances standpoint. It just got me thinking again about, okay, the next downturn is going to be really nasty for the state and local governments too. But, you know, Michigan stands front and center in that one because, you know, the auto sector uh, is so key. And we're already dealing with these massive unfunded pension liabilities. And then you throw the whole, you know, potential for a recession in the auto space. And, you know, I was looking, I just thought out of curiosity, let me see what state of Michigan CDS are trading at. And, you know, it's just a flat line. So no one has any concerns about What's going to happen there? Well, you know, when we first started this project, Real Vision, one of the one of the things that was key to us was this idea of the knock-on effect. You know, and it's such a treat to listen to someone like Steph explain exactly how she thinks. You know, you've got a problem with the consumer, you've got a problem with the auto loans. Where does that go? Well, you know what? It goes to the manufacturers in Detroit. Where does that go? It goes to Michigan municipal bonds. Where does that go? Pension underfunding. You know, it's it's great to listen how a great mind like this works and where they take this through to the end. And, you know, Steph ends up looking at the CDS for the state of Michigan, you know, which is which is flatlining and looks like a great short opportunity. These were, that kind of thinking is, you know, the best people I've ever come across in the industry, they never look at the obvious nope. trade, particularly if they know it's a pervasive trend that's going to last for a while. They know, okay, everyone's going to be looking at this first bit. So I'm going to look at not the second bit, maybe the third bit, the fourth bit. You know, I've seen some astonishing trades in my yeah. time. People like one of the best people in the world at doing that was Lewis Bacon. He could just see ten steps ahead of where it would go and be in that trade massively, really aggressively, much 
much more ahead of everybody else. Everyone's going, what the hell's he doing? And then suddenly everything catches up. Ah, like, yeah. oh, that's really clever. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's tough, right? Because you, when, you, when you're this smart and you get this far ahead of things, it becomes difficult because you have to wait for this thing to play. You can see the dots yourself, but the market, as you said, it waits till it's right in front of it. I mean, that's a true macro thinker. I always talk about this is people who are involved in the macro world have to live in the future. Yeah. And it's actually really uncomfortable because nobody can see what you see because you always live in the future, assess probabilities in the future and have to work back to present day. Yeah. And everyone goes, well, there's nothing going on. You're like, no, but it's coming or the probability is it's coming. So you seem like a madman half the time and a genius a small fraction of the time. But you know, we've watched this. I mean, this was a, say, a year ago this, this interview played out. And since then, the dealer incentives have hit an all-time high, like $4,000 a car. You know, all this stuff is happening exactly as Steph said it was going to so happen. Here's a lovely thing is I got sent an email yesterday from somebody who's doing something actually for Real Vision on autos. It was a photo of a farm. The farm was full of cars because the auto dealer's lot was so yep. full They've got so many cars because the car companies for ages, if you remember, I think it was Zero Hedge was spending a long time saying, look at what they're doing. They're just stuffing the dealers with yep. inventory. And now the dealers are parking their cars in farms because they they can't sell any cars. And meanwhile, the auto uh, manufacturers have built more and more and more. Yep. And if you think of the, you know, took a lock on effects, I mean, the importance of the car industry for US manufacturing, it's basically, US manufacturing is basically planes, cars, and oil. That's all that's left, really. Um, and you've got a really big problem brewing for one of the largest parts of US manufacturing. And as Steph says, the knock-on effects down to single cities is huge, to pension liabilities is massive, um, to the government that's been supporting the car companies as yep. well. To the auto loans companies, there's companies like Santander who run the credit for all the autos. Exactly right. Um, there's a whole number of issues that are kind of creaky at the seams. And when you throw in the retail sector and you throw in the restaurant sector, it just feels a little bit nerve-wracking. But we're still, you know, amazing that we're still not here. All this has happened in a year, and it still seems that like that last dot what? that needs to be connected by investors, they haven't made and it yet. I, somebody asked me this today. They said, well... You know, you've got the, the most overvalued stock market ever. You've got, you know, craziness of ETFs forcing people into indices that mean that companies are not valued as individual companies. Nobody really cares what a company does anymore. You know, you've got this total mania going on in the equity market, which I think is right. And he says, so why doesn't it just fall? I said, well, you've got to have a recession. Yeah. You've got to see basically, I know it sounds stupid, but you have to see true economic weakness coming through in the numbers and then when that happens, you get the holy shit moment. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The pension thing surprised me. Like you said, you know, you look at the chart and you think, okay, well, they've got, you know, they're underfunded, but it's not the worst it's ever been. But it's not the worst it's ever been at a time when we've applied, you know, massive monetary stimulus here and around the globe, and we've had tremendous asset inflation as a result of that. You know, the stock market is up huge. A household net worth is up $32 trillion, and yet pensions are sitting on these liabilities that are the biggest, basically, since after the crisis. Um, that's the scary thing, is when you put it in that context. So if that's our starting point, what happens if I'm right and the market's actually correct, you know, and suddenly the stock market isn't going up 12% a year, uh, that's going to put a major hole in these funds. And 
that has a major economic impact. It's not just an accounting thing. Because if you have to make contributions to fill that hole, that's money diverted from spending on real things or shareholder buybacks and dividends, which just, you know, amplifies the downturn in the markets because that's really been such a key driver of uh, equity prices. So so much there. And again, you know, it comes back to this, these knock on effects. And here we've got Steph talking about the pension liabilities, which is a big, big problem that you and I have spent a lot of time recently focusing on. Um, And Steph's right, you know, the market's at all-time highs. uh, And yet, with all this massive asset price inflation, because of what's happened with interest rates, because of what the Federal Reserve have done in taking rates down to zero, these pension funds have fallen behind this 7% return assumption, which they rigidly stick to somehow. And of course, due to the the magic of compound interest, it works horribly the other way. When you don't make your 7% for a couple of years, it's really, really tough to catch up. And so we have this really weird situation where the asset prices are going through the roof. And yet the longer this happens, the more and more in trouble these pension fund gets. And and there's some really tough decisions to be made here. But there's a really key element is that as the, the... As the American population ages, and it happens across the Western world, and people start dropping out of the labor force, so the labor force participation rate falls, what happens is consumption falls with it. Yeah. Because retired people, I know I talked on the podcast before about how my father's retirement no, spending patterns happened in retirement, but that's happening to an entire nation right now. And Steph is picking this up. And it, not only um, is it becoming a problem but the pension system itself is creaking under the seams from this whole thing. So the retirees are going to get even less money than they thought about, and they're going to spend even less money, which creates even more of a problem. And it, I see this kind of rolling stone that kind of gathers no moss as it keeps rolling faster and faster and faster down the hill as everybody realises there's just not enough money for them. Well, this, bo- you know, this boomer generation has been the backstop for markets for you know 20 years now. They've, they've always put more money into the markets when it's fallen. And I don't think the dots have been joined again that that this generation is now retiring. And it's the biggest generation that's ever retired in the history of the United States. And 10,000 of them hit retirement age every day. And that's not going to stop for almost two decades now. This is going to carry on. And so you're removing these guys from the bid. When the markets fall, they're not going to be there to pick up the pieces. But also the other point that people don't understand is twofold. One is these guys have the maximum allocation to equities at retirement age, which is stupid, right? Yeah. I mean, good thing for the, the Europeans, they may not have made as much money trying to do this, but they they bought bonds a while ago yeah. into age. Americans didn't. They took the risk. They took the gamble, can I make my money back? And what's going to happen is, is they retire with the maximum equity allocation. They think that's fine. But the problem is, is the next time a recession comes, which is due, they're going to halve their wealth because the stock market halves. And they're not in a job anymore to keep investing a 401k to to buy the dip. Yeah. So there's no dip buying. In fact, they have to be sellers. This, this is such a huge deal. I mean, you, know, you and I are going to be doing a lot of work on this in, in coming weeks and months, but but people really need to understand this. To have your maximum allocation in equities at all-time high valuations has been great for the last three or four years. But to your point, if we get a recession, I think the average recession since 1980 is 37%, 40% drawdown in the stock market. You take 70% of your wealth and halve it, when you're, you know, you're, you're in retirement and you're looking to cut down expenses and you have no income because interest rates are essentially zero still, this is a massive, massive problem that is just beginning. I think it's the, I think, again, you and I have talked about this a lot uh, amongst ourselves, and we just think this is the biggest theme 
that we've seen probably in our working careers. The demographics thing is coming to a head kind of today. Um, and again, we'll have a whole big podcast and a whole load of stuff on this. But I think Steph's talking about the same thing here. It's all interrelated. And the problem is it's kind of negative gamma. That's uh, an option market term, meaning you basically have to sell on the way down. And everybody is a forced seller. All right. Well, should we get back to the fabulous Miss Pomboy? I think that uh, the emerging markets are looking much more compelling here, as are the resource economies. I mean, I really feel like one side of this whole dollar move in terms of the upside, you know, where we had this massive rally in the dollar, um, what people missed is that the weakness in the rest of the world was stimulative to their economies. So there was this idea that, oh, you know, this competitive currency devaluation going on around the globe and the dollar was, you know, sort of the island of integrity over here. Um, we were going to be strong and they're all, they can't figure out what the hell they're doing. They'll never get out of the soup, whatever. In the meantime, their weak currencies were already starting to sow the seeds of a reversal, whereas the dollar strength was starting to tax our economy and, and the slow growth here. Um, and it's it's almost as if that whole reflexivity dynamic has been completely missed by people who continue to think, oh, the EM, you know, they'll they're not going to ever get out of it. Meanwhile, you know, they forget the whole reason they were doing the currency debasement was to import growth from us and, and the rest of the world. And at the margin, it's working. You know, those economies have stopped going down and have started to bottom uh, in aggregate. You know, you can pick out some aren't and some are doing better than others. But in the totality, the emerging markets are definitely finding a footing Um and I think the resource economies look really interesting as a result of that, because if you have a bottom in global growth and things start to move higher, obviously, you know, resource economies are a levered bet on that. And they've been decimated. I mean, I think I don't remember if we talked about Russia before, oh, yeah. but um, to me, that's kind of the easiest way to play what I think is going to happen um, and probably the most hair-raising way to do it, too, you know, if you, you want to thrill uh, <laughs> and keep your blood pressure up, you know, that's one way to do it. But um, the Russian market basically trades one for one with the price of oil. And obviously, oil has had a really nice recovery so far this year. Um, and I think what people miss about Russia and other oil-producing states is that they get dollars for their oil, but they pay their workers and they run their operations in their local currencies. So while everyone's bemoaning, you know, the destruction of the ruble, in reality, it's been pretty good if you run a Russian oil company, you know, you're collecting dollars and you're paying people with worthless ruble. It's not a bad formula. Yeah, there's a lot in there. And I know you're just champing at the bit to get in there because you know, this is somewhere that you and Steph uh, divergent opinion that Steph is and has been for some time now a, a card-carrying member of the weak dollar club, and she and she uh, lays out her case very well whenever whenever I sit and talk to her. Um, and the oil trade, you know, this is something again that you know you you've been very vocal about this uh, about how low you think oil is going to go from here. So, you know, what do you make of that when you listen to Steph talking? Um, firstly, she was dead right. I forget this is a year ago. No, absolutely right. So at that point, the Emerging market economies bottomed. Yep. Because if you remember, into Jan, Feb, oil was puking, everything looked terrible. And then pretty much as soon as this was out, they started rallying and stuff like Russia did really well on the back yep. of it. So she was actually dead right. 
So the question I don't know with Steph, because I haven't spoken to her for a while, is um, her time horizons. So, you know, my time horizon was, you know, I, I've been in that trade for five, six, seven years now. So I kind of, these corrections are just corrections to me. Sure. I still think the dollar goes higher over time. I could be wrong. All I know is I almost don't care. All I, I'm on with one fact that I cling on to, which is no dollar bull market in history has ever had a correction larger, larger than 10% on a weekly close. So for me, it's down 5.6% or something right now. And basically, I'm indifferent until it, it breaks that 10%, in which case I'll have been in it for several years and I'll say, fine, that was done. Yeah. If I look at historical dollar bull markets, I still think it goes further from a whole no- number of structural reasons. But, you know, if it changes from here, fine too. It's going to spill out a whole load of trades and different ideas. But what I am seeing, and, and it's not fair on Stephanie now because this is a year later, is, you know, stuff like in the commodity markets, we didn't really have the clearing events. Yeah. We didn't really clear out, you know, the, the copper mining firms because Russia and inter- um, China intervened and started stockpiling. We didn't clear out the oil issues. We've got huge issues in oil. They keep building up. They're worse than they were back in 2014. So we've got a number of problems that I think are still there and that still could cause a larger problem ahead for many of these resource economies. It looks like, you know, Australia looks like it's rolling over, for example, stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting just talking to you there. I think this is a, this is a really valuable lesson for people listening. You know, what you just said there, how you think about these things is, is so important for people to understand. You have your thesis, the strong dollar, uh, you think this market goes much higher. You have the change that will make you reconsider your thinking. And you have that discipline saying, so, you know, if that happens, I'm going to wash my hands, clear out and move on. And that's really important for people listening to understand when you get into trades, and whether it be a macro trade like this or, or you, know, you buy Apple shares, having that parameter and having to understand, okay, this is what I do if this happens, and this is what makes me change my mind. And sticking to it is such a crucial discipline to learn. It was interesting because I was talking to somebody about this yesterday because recently I, I sold all my Bitcoins. Yeah. In this into this parabolic move. Oh, and everyone's there, goes like, the, there goes the mailbox. Oh, God, <laughs> did I get hate mail. Um, but anyway, the point being is people are like, are you selling out because it's a bubble? Uh, you know, you could be wrong. We've had these phases before. I'm like, no, no, I've been in that trade for three or four years. And for me, it wasn't. It was the, all the reasons I had to own Bitcoin had now gone. And for me, I'm not, I tend not to have stop losses. I have kind of the idea either gets to where I think it's going to go or something material changes to change my view. So with the dollar, I've, I've said that, but there's a whole number of issues with the other things with the dollar that could change that. I don't see those developing yet. Um, and with Bitcoin, it was with Bitcoin, it, it was basically a number of reasons that I didn't want to own it anymore. So it can it, it corrected on me 50% at one point, yeah. but I still held it. And and different people trade in different ways. Well, but people get fixated on the price. You know, the, and there's guys in Bitcoin that are looking at the price, saying, "Wow, it's going to go, it's going to go to three thousand. Your framework tells you, okay, if this, 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 and this goes away, this is not the trade I put on, I'm out. Really interesting, this morning I was thinking, when I was uh, getting dressed this morning to come into the office, about when I was running a hedge fund, I used to think in terms of P&L. And it screwed you up when you're having a good day and you're like, you've made X million dollars for the fund. And you think, I need to take that money off the table. But when you step away from that, and you're basically trading your own account and doing that kind of thing. You actually just think in terms of the price you got in, kind of what money am I prepared to lose? And then a rough idea of where you think it should go. And as long as all the reasons to be in the trade are valid, you kind of ignore yeah. the PL 
Because the moment you start focusing on P&L, it drives you nuts. Yeah, it's very true. It's those numbers. If, as soon as you start fixating on the numbers, you lose sight of the reasons for being and stuff. And it's such Always, a great yeah. Well, look, that's, um, that's everything we've got from Steph. It's uh, you know, fascinating to listen to a talk a year ago about this stuff, um, you know, the consumer being such a crucial part of the US economy. Uh, you know, she saw what's happening now a year ago. Um, we'll have to get her back on soon and, and update her thinking on this because it, it is such a crucial part, not just of the US economy, but of course the global economy. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an unabashed fan of Steph's work. Um, she's a dear friend of mine, and uh, I, I just love reading her work every chance I get. And, you know, Steph has an ability to look in directions that most people don't think of, and she has this uncanny ability to join dots um, at a speed and in directions that people really struggle to do. And a lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that in the early days of her career, she was very fortunate to cover a lot of the big-name hedge fund managers on the street, guys like Paul Tudor Jones and George Soros and Stan Druckenmiller, and I know she learned a lot from those guys. And, and this ability to, to, to take the other view and, and to think things through linearly and try and join dots and, and, and look for that second and third derivative of the data points you see, is, it's such a very hard thing for people to do. And very few people do it like Steph does. Yeah, she does it incredibly well. And, and also in her manner of communication as well, because you know we are, I guess, at times guilty of talking about these complex things in ways that are unex- you know, inaccessible. But I think uh, Stephanie does a great job of communicating the ideas as well. Well, Grant, let's move on to our final segment called Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that, that they derive from that experience. And so, Grant, I spoke with Jerry Hayworth, who's the CEO of 36 South Capital, and we spoke about what he got wrong shorting the NASDAQ in 1998 when it was on its final face-ripping rally upwards. So this week, I have the pleasure of being joined by Jerry Hayworth, who is the CEO and CIO of 36 South Capital Advisors based in London. Now, Jerry, the last time we uh, spoke with you on Real Vision TV was back in, I think, July or August of 2016. It's been uh, been too long, so really happy to have you on. Oh, great. Thanks. It's great to be here. So before we get into the meat of this segment, can you uh, give our listeners a rundown of your background, uh, what you do, and and in broad strokes, how you view and approach markets? Yeah, uh, so I've uh, been in the financial markets since about 1987. I've uh, seen a few ups and downs, as you can imagine predominantly in options and equity derivatives. Uh, I've been absolutely fascinated by it from the day. I think I did my thesis uh, at university on the viability of an of an options exchange. And so I've been fascinated and I'm still as fascinated today as I was back then. Uh, I was a market maker uh, in bonds and equities in South Africa. I started a financial services company called Peregrine that uh, basically was a designed institutional derivative strategies that did very well. I moved to New Zealand and started 36 South, which is uh, the current business. And I've been very lucky in my life to uh, get one or two good insights and a, a decent education and a 30-year bull market. I was, I was going to ask you, Jerry, was this, when you said you started in 1987, was this uh, pre or post uh, Black Monday? It was a month before. Oh. <laughs> wow. Talk about a, a baptism by fire. Yeah. 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 Well, let's get, let's get right into this. Um, can you tell us about a time you made an investing mistake and uh, maybe share the applicable lesson you drew from that experience? 
Yeah, well, firstly, I just want to say probably the greatest lesson I've ever learned was a friend of mine who said that uh, a problem is a coconut and what you're seeking is coconut milk. That's the opportunity. And you'll always find an opportunity in a, in a problem. And I think this is kind of true to here. Probably the biggest mistake we made, uh, my current partner, myself, was sort of 98 to 2000 shorting the NASDAQ. I mean, we nearly got our faces ripped off. And it became apparent to us. I remember, I think it was George Soros who said that a bull market starts when value departs from reality. That's not the end of the bull market. That's the start of the bull market. And I remember we used to, th we were thinking it was the end of the, uh, the bull market because there was just no value. But actually shorting stocks was an incredibly difficult thing to do. And, and, you were going to get your face ripped off. Um, so that was the mistake. The The opportunity that came out of it was that we eventually we eventually gave up on shorting stocks and basically said, look, there are certain, there's certain stocks that are, we believe, 100 times over their valuation. Why don't we just take a long-term option, a leap put option, long-term anticip anticipative, uh, not anticipative, option. Why don't we just take one of those and we sit and wait it out? So instead of being like a great white hunter and going and, and trying to kill the tiger ourselves and risking life, life and limb, why don't we just lay a trap? And if, if uh, it is a bear market and the animals go down our road, we will catch something. And that's what we did. And through 2000, uh, we, did, we did really well with that strategy. And that was the genesis of 36 South. Jerry, it's, it's so, I think it's fascinating you mentioned 98 because when we look at today, in many ways, I don't know if it, if it feels like, I mean, I was, I was really young and at least from what I've heard or the people that I follow on Twitter, uh, we may be in this final blow off phase of this bull market. I, I think the comment you made about value dislocating from reality being the moment, you know, when you, ha when you have a bull market starting, um, how do you relate that experience in 98 to 2000 to where we are today? This is... I think I think what is different is this is like a Potomkin village. Uh, zero interest rates make every asset worth infinity, theoretically. I mean, so there is absolutely no guide, guide yardstick to what assets should be worth at zero interest rates. Because if you if you did have access to zero interest rates for a long period of time, you would buy you would pay an infinite amount for any asset. You'd pay a billion dollars for a Monet. It wouldn't make any difference to you. So it's very difficult for me to judge where we are. I think if interest rates normalize, I think uh, we are massively over, the assets are massively, massively overvalued. The question I ask is, is it even reasonable to expect interest rates to normalize when uh, the governments have so much, well, the world has so much debt, whether it's even feasible? Yeah, I, I think Grant, um, I remember Grant putting out a, he put out this chart about what would happen under various scenarios of rate normalizations in the, in the United States alone and um, the rate at which it would eat up um, GDP or, or uh, the interest payments uh, would eat up GDP is, is astounding. Um, Jerry, I want to get back to uh, the, the shift you made from giving up on shorting or, or letting go of, of shorting stocks to looking to longer duration uh, put options. Uh, recently, I was just I was looking at um, we we recently did a piece on volatility, and I I started looking at skew, and and I found out that okay, so skew is um, gives you a measure of how uh, how expensive it is to hedge tail risk. 
um, to the downside. With that being so expensive, how do you, I mean, how can you set those traps today if you don't want to be shorting, but still want to give yourself that optionality, uh, maybe one year or two years down the road? Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's many ways to do that. And, uh, the equity left tail has been predominantly expensive. Uh, but that's not always the case. In fact, uh, the, the the end of a volatility cycle, I think volatility is a cycle. Of, it's like the fear and greed cycle. It's just an indicator of complacency because you're trying to gauge how complacent you are about what you don't know you don't know. And so I think, you know, volatility being down this low in, in itself is a canary in the coal mine. And I point to, I wish I had a more recent example, but the Japanese five-year put warrants in the early 90s, the Japanese institutions really believed that the Japanese market, equity market would never go down. You could buy extremely cheap, long-dated, out-of-the-money puts. And uh, that was right at 38,000 and plus on the Nikkei. That almost is a canary in the coal mine itself. So I look at the market today and I say, well, what are the ridiculously cheap, long-dated, out-of-money options? And they calls. So you may very well find that uh, with financial asset inflation, that the calls are the actual tail risk that institutions face. Now, what is the current trend in uh, in the options markets? They all writing calls uh, over their stocks to uh, get a bit more yield. Well, that might very well um, crimp their ability to to uh, participate in a huge move up in the equity market. I'm not saying that, but uh, it is possible. I, I think in the absence, of, if, if this current paradigm continues, volatilities will plumb uh, new, new lows. I, I mean, I think the the short-term volatility is about at ground zero. I think the S&P, even with dividends and index adjustments, have got, has got to jiggle a little bit. And I think we're basically there. So the short-dated option, the uh, between 7% implied volatility is about ground zero. The long-dated options and the skew is, a, is, is much higher, but it is below average now. So I think it is reasonably priced. We look to accumulate on the way down. So we're not we're not making a we don't make implicit forecasts about the market and when black swans and grey swans and red swans are going to appear on the horizon. We just make uh, implicit forecasts about the implicit value in options given uh, what they trade at, and the, the the proxy for that is implied volatility. And it is well below average now. So we start accumulating. Well, Jerry, I, I would love to spend much more time picking your brain about options. Uh, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, for our listeners can, who want to find out more about 36 South or read your writing or even get in touch, how can they do that? Uh, well, we have a website, 36south.com. Um, I have a blog that is pretty tongue-in-cheek, uh, fin entertainment, I call it. Um, and... Yeah, sure. You could reach out via the website um, and get hold of us. If you have more questions, I'm happy to answer them. Well, thanks for joining us, Jerry. Great. Thank you. You know, Jerry's uh, story about changing tax when he realized he was getting his face ripped off is, is a really, really interesting one. And, you know, and everybody that traded through that period has has a great story. And, and to me, 
the one that resonated most with me and stuck with me ever since I heard it was Stan Druckenmiller's story. And he, he was talking at a private gathering to Ken Langone on stage and they were talking about the stuff. And, and uh, Stan very famously um, had stayed out of the tech boom and uh, was sitting there watching all these young tech traders making millions upon millions every day. And he finally jumped in. He just couldn't stand out anymore. He thought it was a bubble. He you know, thought it was crazy, but he just couldn't, he couldn't resist anymore watching everybody else make money. So he jumped in and very famously lost a billion dollars uh, from the Soros Quantum Fund. And, you know, Ken asked him, he said, you know, what, what, what did you learn? What was the lesson you took away from that? And Stan's answer was absolutely brilliant. He said, uh, he said, I didn't learn anything. He said, I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway. And that was a painful, painful lesson to me. So I think that, that, the idea of going against your gut feel um, is such a great one to learn. If you if you feel something's wrong and there's something in your gut that just tells you not to do it, you have to learn to trust yourself, especially when you have some experience in this business. So, you know, 98 to 2000, I think everybody, as I said, has a lesson from that. And uh, it's always great to hear other people's lessons and maybe pick up a few things that, uh, that we didn't have to learn the hard way ourselves, Aaron. Yeah. And, and I guess like, you know, learning why we have this segment is because we want our listeners to, you know, have... Um, have the opportunity to at least learn from some of these mistakes that, you know, market experts have made and market veterans. Um, but I guess this is where something like risk management really comes into play. So it allows you to take those risks and to learn those lessons, but to do it without losing your, your shirt. Um, I mean, <laughs> losing a billion dollars is, is, uh, I mean, not everyone can, can sustain that kind of, uh, that loss. I mean, not, not on a, on, on an absolute basis, but even on like a relative basis. Um, but I, you know, which is why risk management is something that I've been trying to study like much more intently in the, in the past couple of months. And especially with the, um, with the piece that, uh, that, that Peter Brandt came up with. So risk management, I think is, is important. It allows, it's kind of like a life jacket, you know, allows you to take those risks and jump in, uh, but to not lose everything in the course of doing so. All right. Well, sadly, Aaron, we have come to the end of another episode of Adventures in Finance. So before we go, um, we have to offer you a quick disclaimer that anything you heard on this episode really should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, of course, and trade responsibly. All right, next week we'll be back with our usual long, short, and things I got wrong segments. And for a feature documentary, now that the dust has finally settled on the May 12th WannaCry ransomware attack, we'll be diving deep into cybersecurity and look at the state of play in this sector, what companies and individuals should be doing in this rapidly changing field and reality that, you know, unfortunately is going to be a bigger part of our lives going forward. So we're going to be talking to some experts about what's happening in the space, what countries, what companies and individuals are doing and should be doing going forward. So you definitely want to check out that episode. Yeah, and in the meantime, as always, if you have an interesting question about this week's show or for that matter, anything else, we would love to hear it. So send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us those precious precious reviews we need those and if anyone can explain how the hell that works we'd love to hear about it but apparently it does now to keep up to date with the latest interviews research publications and podcast episodes please do follow us on twitter at real vision you can also find us hanging out on facebook and linkedin just search for us at real vision and you can follow me on twitter at ttmygh you can follow me at macrodidact and that's it from us we will see you back here same time next week
a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.